If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8, as we continue our studies this morning in the book of Amos. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. He said, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals, that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this will not the land quake, and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation." And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. Now here in Amos chapter 8, we find that the end is announced for the people of Israel. In verses 1 through 3, we see that this end is announced by means of a vision which the Lord showed to Amos. Verses 4 through 10, we find the wickedness of the people denounced and their hypocrisy exposed and their judgment announced. And then in verses 11 through 14, the Lord announces that a famine is coming, a famine of a different kind. It's not a famine of bread, not a shortage of water. It is a famine in regard to hearing the word of God. And so as we look to the chapter today, we'll consider it under three headings. First, the end announced. Secondly, the hypocrisy exposed. And thirdly, the famine is coming. And we'll be spending most of our time on that third point. But again, the points are the end announced, the hypocrisy exposed, the famine is coming. And so first of all, the end is announced. As chapter 8 opens, the Lord shows Amos a basket of summer fruit. And upon showing it to Amos and Amos recognizing what it is, the Lord says to Amos, The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Now we read that, and if we're paying attention, we'll say, Wait wait a minute. What just happened here? I don't, I don't see the connection. There's a basket of summer fruit. 
the end is coming. I, I don't get it. What's going on here? Well, there's a reason we don't see the connection, and it's because there's a play on the words in the Hebrew. The word for summer fruit is the word kayetz. And the word kayetz sounds like the word for the end, which is kates. And so the Lord shows Amos a basket of kayetz, and the reason is that the kates has come. The basket of summer fruit is a sign showing that the end has come. And what then does it mean that the end has come? Well, the Lord goes on to explain this in verses 2 and 3. I will spare them no longer. Songs of the palace will be turned into wailing that day. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. And that opening statement, I will spare them no longer, is the same statement that had occurred earlier up in chapter 7, verse 7, in connection with the vision of the plumb line that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Both visions, the vision of the plumb line in chapter 7 and the vision of the summer fruit here in chapter 8 point to the same reality, that judgment was coming. The rebellious people of Israel could only be spared for so long there was a time coming at which they would no longer be spared. And thus it was that the Israelites were overrun by the Assyrians a few decades after the time of Amos, after this prophecy was delivered. And we don't know all of what occurred when that happened because not very many of the details of the defeat of Israel are given to us in the biblical account in 2 Kings 17. We know from that chapter that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, besieged Samaria for three years before the city fell and that Israel was carried away into exile, and then that other peoples were brought into the land of Israel to settle there. But lest we jump away too quickly from those rather few details that are given to us in the text of 2 Kings 17, we need to remember that sieges in the ancient world, and for that matter, sieges in the modern world, are often ugly and grisly affairs for those who are caught inside the city. Supplies become scarce, People starve. There's often cannibalism that occurs. Things can get ugly quickly during a siege when the supplies inside the city run out. An earlier siege of Samaria is recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 2 Kings 7. It gives us a bit of a picture of how terrible some of those things could be. And thus the Lord says here in verse 3, Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. In other words, this judgment would be severe. And even so, it is for us that one day the Lord will no longer spare the entire world. Right now, we are living in the days of the Lord's patience, the day of the Lord's kindness, but there is coming a day at which that patience and kindness, which is shown to the wicked now, that patience and kindness will one day expire. Right now is the day of salvation, but one day, that day will be closed. That day will pass from the scene. And so we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that by his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Likewise, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The point is, this is the time of the Lord's patience. Now is the day of salvation. The doors are open to come to Christ. The gospel is preached. The call to repent and believe is proclaimed to the lost. But in the midst of a world that seems to go on and on, 
year after year, decade after decade, all seems to be going along, we need to remember, we need to keep in mind that the Lord is not slow about keeping his promise. That one day, Christ will return and will judge the wicked and will consign the wicked to eternal destruction. On that day, he will spare them no longer. And so what, what should be the practical takeaway for us then from this truth? This should cause us to be sober, to make sure that we're walking faithfully with the Lord, and also to seek to spread this gospel to others. And therefore we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt in intense heat. And likewise, Peter exhorts us, 2 Peter three fourteen and 15, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, in so many words, Peter says to us the same thing that Amos said of the people of Israel in his day. And that is that there is coming a day in which God will spare the world no longer. But Peter also tells us how we are to conduct ourselves in the meantime. We're to regard these days of the Lord's patience as salvation. These are the days when the judgment of God has been delayed, as it were. And we must seek to redeem this time, the now that the Lord has given to us. And we redeem that by seeking to spread the message of salvation and by making every effort to be found spotless and blameless ourselves in Christ. Pursuing holiness, godliness, seeking to walk with the Lord in all ways. And so make good use of the time because someday the day of God's patience will end for the entire world and God will spare them no longer. We don't know when that's going to be, but may God keep us faithful in the meantime. And this brings us to our second point this morning, which is the hypocrisy exposed. As the Lord announces this day of judgment that was coming upon them, he draws attention to the heart attitudes of the people of Israel who hypocritically observed the Sabbath and the new moon celebrations. But even while they were doing so, they were anxious to return to their crooked practices so that they could cheat the people with whom they had business dealings. They may have technically been resting on the new moon and the Sabbath, at least outwardly to some degree. But it is evident that it was not because they loved God and wanted to seek Him and wanted to honor Him. Rather, they were outwardly conforming to some religious forms, all the while being anxious to get the wheat market back open so that they could cheat the poor so as to increase their profits. They want to make the bushel smaller so that they don't have to sell as much grain as they are claiming to sell. They want to make the shekel bigger so as to get more money and say, well, you're only paying me a shekel when actually maybe they're paying a shekel and a quarter of a shekel or something to that effect. And while they, uh, we find there at the end of verse 5 that their cheating is described as being done with dishonest scales. They're not selling as much as they claim to be Selling. And as verse 6 makes clear, they're doing this to the most vulnerable in society, buying the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. By their ruthless greed and oppression, they were driving the poor 
into slavery. And another part of their greedy schemes is found in the end of verse 6, in which it is said that they desired to sell the refuse of the wheat. In other words, the bad stuff, the part that was unfit to sell, or at least unfit to sell at the regular price. These people wanted to do anything that they could in order to get ahead, and they didn't care who they ran over and drove into the ground in order to get ahead. Now, it is said that no one seems to know too much about the old-time music group called the Bentley Boys, other than that they were from North Carolina, and that in 1929 they released a two-sided record with one song on each side. On one side, the song was called The Hen House Blues, and the other side had a song called Down on Penny's Farm. And Penny's Farm was, I don't know if it still is or not, but was a favorite of my boys. And it describes the greedy and oppressive landowner named George Penny. George Penny brings tenants out to live and work on his farm only to take advantage of them. Part of the song says, Hadn't George Penny got a flattery mouth, move you to the country in a little log house, has got no windows except the cracks in the walls, he'll work you all summer and rob you in the fall. It's a hard time in the country out on Penny's farm. Another one of the verses says, Here George Penny, he'll come into town with a wagon load of peaches, not one of them sound, got to have his money or somebody's check. You're paying for a bushel and you don't get a peck. It's a hard time in the country out on Penny's farm. Now if you just added a few details to the song, such as to say that George Penny was a reasonably strict Sabbatarian. You might say that George Penny could be roughly the modern equivalent of these oppressive Israelites described here in Amos chapter 8. This is wicked, and the Lord sees and knows and will judge accordingly. We see here, as we've seen so often throughout the book of Amos, that the Lord is very concerned with how we treat other people being outwardly persnickety about religious observances while having a heart that is bent on cheating and taking advantage of others is despicable to the Lord. This is hypocrisy, and judgment comes because of it. And so we read the Lord's words in verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. And thus the judgment is described in verses 8 through 10. The land would quake, those who dwelt in it would mourn, It would be a day of darkness and not light. It would be a day in which the good things that Israel enjoyed would be flipped on their heads and changed into bad things. Festivals would be turned to mourning. Songs would be changed into lamentation. All of the earthly abundance that they were enjoying at that time would fade away and they would be brought to the point of desolation. In the words of verse 10, it would be like a time of mourning for an only son. The end of it all would be a bitter day. This is the fruit of hypocrisy. The Lord sees and knows, even if nobody else sees and knows. We will never get away from the Lord. And this brings us then to our third point, which is the famine is coming. We have seen the judgment upon their external physical circumstances how the Lord would turn their festivals into mourning and their songs into lamentation and so on. But the closing verses of the chapter inform us that this was only one part of the judgment. There was another part that was coming for them. There would be a temporal, spiritual judgment that would come upon them as well. There were 
There, were, there was a judgment connected to some of their physical circumstances, but there was also a spiritual judgment that would come to them. That spiritual judgment was a famine, a famine that would be even worse than a shortage of food. It would be, as we are told, a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. The Lord announces that he would one day take his word away from them. And what this means is that the Lord would bring upon these people a time such that there would be no more prophets to prophesy to them. There would be no more faithful teaching of the word of God. And according to verse 12, even though people were to go from place to place seeking the word of the Lord, they would not find it. This judgment would come upon them because they had had the word of God but rejected it and refused to pay attention to it. And thus, in effect, the Lord says to them, you don't want to listen to my word? Very well then, you will not have it at all. Now this was the experience of King Saul, was it not? King Saul, if you will recall the history of 1 Samuel, rejected the word of the Lord, most notably in that incident described in 1 Samuel 15, when he did not destroy the Amalekites and all of their belongings as he was commanded. And so Samuel, on that occasion, said to him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul's life and his reign had already begun to unravel by that point, but it continued to unravel, and unravel a whole lot worse after that. Is it any wonder then, that by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 5 through 7, we read this, that when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now King Saul, in some sense, sought the Lord, at least externally. He wanted the Lord to speak to him and to reveal to him what was going to happen, to tell him how things were going to go down with the Philistines, which were making him afraid. He wanted to know what was going to happen in the battle that was coming. But interestingly enough, the closing summary of Saul's life that is given to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, tells us that Saul died for his failure to keep the word of the Lord And also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. I think Matthew Poole's comment to reconcile those two accounts, 1 Samuel 28 and 1 Chronicles chapter 10, was was very applicable and helpful when he noted that Saul did inquire of the Lord, but not in a right manner, not humbly, And penitently, not diligently, and importunately, not patiently and perseveringly. But when God would not answer him speedily, he gives it over and goes from God to the devil. Such an inconsiderable and trifling inquiry as Saul made is justly accounted to be no inquiry at all. Saul was a man who had the word of God, who disregarded the word of God, who suffered the loss of the word of God, and who suffered greatly when the word of God was taken away from him. And, when he, and he did not find it again. Even though he outwardly sought for it, in some sense he didn't seek rightly. And because he did not seek for it in the right way, his seeking was accounted to be no seeking at all. Now how much better to be 
in the situation of which Isaiah prophesied to Judah in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 19 through 21. Isaiah says to the people there, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. You will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Now notice the contrast between what was going on here in the book of Amos and what was going on in the situation of Isaiah. The people of Israel were told by Amos that they would have a famine, but not of bread. The people of Judah, on the other hand, were told by Isaiah that they either had or would be eating the bread of oppression and drinking the water of privation. In other words, things either had or else would not in the future be going quite so well for them outwardly. But nevertheless, they would have the word of God. Amos describes the people as staggering about seeking the word of God and not finding it. Isaiah describes the people as being led and guided by the word of God. Now the scriptures leave us no doubt as to which one is better. But let me ask you here this morning, which one do you want? Which one do you want? Do you want the word of God guiding you such that whether you are well-fed or hungry, that is a secondary matter. So long as you are being led and taught by the word of God, so long as you have salvation through Christ and the pathway of godliness set clearly before your eyes and your heart, or would you rather, like the people of Amos' day, have plenty of food and outward provisions and yet turn your back on the word of God and descend deeper and deeper into darkness such that even when you do attempt to turn back to God and find the word, you're not able to seek it with all of your heart and all of your efforts profit you nothing. Which one do you want? Obviously, we would naturally prefer to have the word of God and outward provisions for our lives and bodies. There is certainly nothing inherently incompatible between the two of them. But if you were forced absolutely to choose between the two, which one do you want? The answer seems pretty easy when we're sitting here in church on Sunday morning. We would say, of course, we want the word of God to be our guide, whether in good times or in bad times. And I hope that truly describes your position. And if it does, then translate that answer into practical terms, moment by moment. What does that mean to translate that answer of, yes, I want the word of God? How do you translate that into practical terms, moment by moment? It means that if you want to retain the word of God to guide you in the future, then don't reject it in the present. Let me say that again. If you want the word of God to guide you in the future, then don't reject it in the present, right now. We have to understand here in the case that Amos is describing that God is not simply being capricious. He's not taking his word away from people who loved it and cherished it. Said he was taking it away from people who had continually despised it, continually refused to listen to it. It was, as it were, payment in kind. They'd rejected the word of God, and so, as a consequence, they were rejected from having the word of God. And so, again, if you want the word of God to guide you in the future, don't reject it in the present. This means that you must submit to it day by day in everything. Rejection of the word of God at one point often leads to it, to you rejecting it at other points. And then, as a trajectory is set, 
that trajectory is then followed to tragic consequences. I'm aware that in making such a case, there may be some who would scoff and say that what I'm setting up is a slippery slope fallacy. I'm aware there is such a thing as a slippery slope fallacy. But as one of my dear friends had said, the problem is that some slopes really are slippery. And this is certainly one of them. When we begin to reject the word of God, we're only setting ourselves up for greater and greater rejections. If we can rationalize one sin, what makes us think that we will not rationalize some other sin that is even more egregious? If we can rationalize some form of unbelief on the grounds that a particular doctrine doesn't make sense to us, then what makes us think that we would offer any resistance at all to the beckonings of the world when it tells us that all of Christian doctrine is nonsense? What makes us think that we would offer rejection to the, uh, uh, or any resistance to the, the beckonings of the world when it tells us to loosen up a little bit and calm down about pursuing holiness because, after all, the law of God is foolish and oppressive and repressive. If we would avoid finding ourselves in a famine in regard to the word of God, then let's not reject it day by day in even what seems to be the little things. It turns out to, that the little things add up and are actually of great significance. And what this means is that we must submit to the word of God even when it appears to be irrelevant. We must submit to the word of God even when it is decried as hateful and bigoted. We must submit to the word when our flesh rebels against it. We must submit to the word when the world blasts us for it and persecutes us for it. We must submit to the word even when we don't understand it. And may God grant us all insight and understanding into his word. But as important as it is to understand the word of God, our first duty is not actually to understand it, but to believe it and to obey it. We must trust the truth of God even when our understanding and comprehension are lagging a step or two behind, or even when our understanding is lagging more than a step or two behind. And I would add that one of the ways that we work together to stave off this famine of the word is to band together in the church to support a faithful ministry of the word, to hear the word and to live it out in faith and obedience together. And we speak of this in our church covenant when we say that we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. If you don't want to have a famine in regard to the word of God, then get involved in the local church, whether it be this particular local church or some other faithful local church. Join it. Support it financially. Pray for her. Pray with her. Serve in her and be served by her. Listen and submit to the word of God with her as due attention is given to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. After all, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. This means, as one writer expressed it, the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth because of the possession of and preservation of the purity of the apostolic doctrine. The church has the word of God and preserves the word of God and proclaims the word of God. And if it does not, then it is no longer worthy of being called the church of God. It is through the church that the word of God is spread through the world. It is through the church that believers are preserved in their faith as the word of God is taught and lived out together. And the core center of the word of God where it all points to 
is the gospel itself. Those things that Paul described as being of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The Son of God was born into the world. The Virgin Mary. The eternal Son of God became a man and he lived a perfectly holy life. Never sinning once. He viewed the word of God as more important than his daily bread. When tempted by Satan to misuse the, uh, his power for his own selfish ends, Jesus responded by quoting the words of Deuteronomy 8.3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he viewed his bread as doing the will of God, such that he could say in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. To accomplish his work. And Jesus did accomplish the work that his father sent him to do. Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners. And Jesus saved sinners by dying on the cross, bearing in their place the punishment which sinners deserve, so that everyone who trusts in him will not have to suffer the wrath or judgment of God, because Christ himself suffered the punishment for all who trust in him. He died and was buried. But thank God he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he came to life again. There was a glorious resurrection so that it might be clearly seen that God the Father was pleased with the suffering of his Son so that it might be seen that the debt of sin was fully paid so that it might be clearly seen that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the good news and center of the gospel. This is that to which all the word of God directs us and points us to Christ and his sacrifice for sinners. And the church is the custodian and steward of this message in the world. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. And so if you want to avoid the famine, if you want to avoid that condition described in verse 12 where people are staggering from place to place, seeking the word of God but not finding it, if you want to avoid that, stay close to where the food is. Read and study the word of God for yourself. Stick closely to a church where the word is taught and read and preached. Join yourself to a church where the word of God is clearly taught. Participate in the governance of the church so as to continue a faithful and evangelical ministry in that church that is based on the word of God. We hold to the word not only as individuals but also collectively as a church. And thus it was that Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 14 through 16, Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. The church bands together. They hold fast, or sometimes it's translated, holding forth the word of life. We do both. We hold on to it, and we hold it out as well. This is our calling as believers, to hold fast the word of life, and we do it together in the church. Sadly, how often has the church of God neglected the word and therefore suffered the same type of famine that is described here in Amos chapter 8? It is said that when the Haldane brothers, Robert and James, were converted towards the end of the 1700s and began their itinerant preaching in Scotland, that they spoke to many people who had never even heard of salvation by grace. It's amazing that they could be in a country that has an officially Protestant established church and 
People had not heard of salvation by grace. And James Haldane once visited a 92-year-old man on his deathbed. And Haldane wrote of that encounter in his journal. He said, asked him what was to become of him after death. He replied he was very ignorant, could not read, but had sometimes prayed to God. On being asked whether he knew anything of Christ, he acknowledged his entire ignorance. And this old man told Haldane that 80 years earlier, when he was a boy, he had been concerned about his soul and had prayed that the Lord would send a teacher to instruct him. And 80 years later, he viewed James Haldane as the answer to that prayer. And Haldane wrote in his journal that he preached to him the gospel, declaring that now the Lord was waiting to be gracious and that if he believed what the word of God testified of his guilt and misery and of the person of work of Christ, he should be saved. He cried to God for the pardon of his sins and being informed that his prayers could only be heard through Jesus Christ, who came to save the very chief of sinners, he called upon the Savior for mercy and repeatedly exclaimed, I believe, I believe. There are tragic consequences when the church abandons Scripture and the faithful teaching of Scripture. You have this man who had gone for 80 years without hearing what he so desperately needed to hear, waited a long time for the answer to his prayer. How many others have starved because of such a famine? We don't want the famine for ourselves, for our children, or for anyone else. Then let's all do our part, every one of us. By the grace of God, let's believe the word and submit to it. And let's join together in the church in hearing the word and supporting the ministry of the word in various ways. Let's seek to have the ministry of the word expand beyond these walls through missions and evangelism. And let's hold fast to this word of life ourselves, as we hold it out to others and invite them to partake of this word of life so that they too may trust in Christ and find the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift of your word. Lord, we ask that you would preserve us from famine. Let us not reject it gradually more and more, but we ask rather that the opposite would be true, that we would love it more and more, that we would see ever more fully how we do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, we thank you that your word points us to Christ in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful and Lord, that you would send this word to those who are starving, those who need life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.